0: Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Epiphany in Lent, we are back in the Gospel of Luke, where we see God revealed in Jesus. As is common for Luke, what we see is the kingdom coming to all, but maybe most often to the unexpected, We'll see Jesus challenge his disciples, the rich young ruler and the proud religious leader, but commend a persistent widow, insist that the children come to him, and reveal that a blind beggar can see him for who he is even better than his own disciples. Finally, we will make our way with Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd around him as he enters Jerusalem on Holy Week long ago. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless.
1: Lord, would the words of our mouths and the meditations, or the words of my mouth now, and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Uh, speak to us now, Lord. We want to hear from you. and Change us, God. Conform us to your likeness, we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to uh, read to you, I want to uh, share with you two statements. And as I do so, I want you to sit with these statements a bit, and I want you to sort of notice how you react, okay? So I'm going to read these, and I'm going to give you a little bit of silence, and I want you to sort of re- hear, feel how your body reacts a little bit. And maybe what you think about, and where your heart's going, when I share with you these statements. Okay. The first one is one of our meditation quotes from Anne Lamott. Listen. Everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared. Even the people who seem to have it more or less together are much more like you than you would believe. So try not to compare yourself, your insides, to their outsides. All right, the second statement. You can do whatever you put your mind to. Okay, um, sort of a weird way to start a sermon. Now I'm going to get into it a little bit. Okay, maybe at first you thought the first statement it's a little dour, downer, Debbie Downer kind of statement. And maybe this the second statement at first felt empowering, right? My guess, though is that it's the first statement that actually sort of allowed you to breathe a little bit more. Breathe. To look at yourself and maybe to look at others with a little bit more grace. Uh, To engage your neighbor maybe with a little bit more love. Uh, Some of you maybe have heard of this book. In 2020, uh, Ada Calhoun wrote a book, Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis. I did not read that book, but I remember hearing about it. It wasn't for me anyway, I guess, even though I probably could have read it. Um, She had reached middle age, and she was looking about at all of her friends, and she was like, you know, most of my friends are actually, like, fairly successful. They've sort of gotten somewhere in life. And I'm looking at them, and every single one of them is telling me, I can't sleep. Um, In an interview on NPR, she said, In the past, the question was, uh, how nice is your home? Uh, How good are you at your job? Now it's like all of the things, all of them. So it's, are you a good parent? Are you good at work? Is your house nice? nice? Are you in shape? Are you recycling? (sighs) Like every single factor in your life you have to excel at. Hey, if you put your mind to it, you can do it. Right? I mean, are you vocal in all of the right ways about all of the right issues at all of the right times? Are you? You can do whatever you put your mind to. Moves very quickly from a statement of empowerment to a statement of shame. Um, Calhoun says the idea that women could do anything somehow morphed into the directive that they must do everything and do it all Effortless, effortless. I can't even say that word with its own meaning. Effortless, effortlessly. It's not a very effortless, effortless word. I can't say it. (laughs) Uh, Okay, you all have heard, as I have, um, because we've all heard these stats about anxiety in our time. Um, Across the board, diagnoses for anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicide, are at an all-time high. And it seems like they just keep getting higher. Um, If you were born between the year 1995 and 2012, which, you know, Gen Z, um, there's a 57% chance that you're taking medication for one of those mental health symptoms. And there's a 90% chance that you're struggling with anxiety. And we know, actually, that it's not unique to that generation at all. And of course they are, right? Of course we are. What we've done is we've told people, hey, you can do whatever you just put your mind to. You can have it all. You can live the way that you dream of. And of course, the internet has done all the more damage to all of this, where what you mostly see are people that seem to have it all, that seem to do what they want, when they want, and we just live a life of comparison, live a life of comparison. Uh, Because of this, Jonathan Hyatt, um, the NYU professor that I'm sure many of you know of, says that we've moved on from a sort of discovery mode of the world. um, What is it? How can we find our place within it? um, To a defense mode, a mode of defending. All the reasons why it's so wrong. He says, um, here we are in the safest, most welcoming, most inclusive, most anti-racist places on the planet. But many of us are acting like we're entering a sort of dystopian, threatening, immoral world. And of course we are. Because what we've been told is that if you put your mind to it, you can do it. This high view of you can accomplish anything. And we look around and we say, what a mess we are. And what a mess everybody else is. And what a mess this world is. And all we want to do is say, forget it. Um, What's also remarkable, I should share this is that this same generation, the generation born between 1995 and 2012, according to a recent study by the Barna Group, is actually more receptive to faith than the previous generations, the the two previous generations, millennial and Gen X. It says that uh, 65% of that generation, when they've been polled, will actually say that the Bible is holy and something that they want to explore. 65%. It's kind of encouraging. So to look at this parable, if you know know a couple of parables, you probably know the parable of the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. And hopefully you know those parables. They're really lovely, beautiful stories that Jesus teaches us. If you know a couple more parables, you might know this one. This one that Chuck just read for us. Let me read it for you again. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Presbyterian and the other a Publican. The Presbyterian standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the publican standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Two approaches to God, two approaches to God. Um, but also two approaches to others and two approaches to themselves. And I want to work that backwards. Okay, let's first look at how they approach themselves, others, and then God. Okay. How they approach themselves. Okay. Did you notice that I changed the word? You did. I heard you laugh. Um, because here's the thing. If I say the word hip, uh, Pharisee, you say the word hypocrite. Religious hypocrite. You already have this notion. Ah, Pharisee, somebody that I can dismiss. Um, but, but you've got to understand that in the first century, the time of Jesus, Jesus. Um, That that couldn't be closer to how you would generally react to that person. Um, The words that would have come to your mind would have been the words pious, devout, God-fearing, spiritually earnest. If Jesus was going to begin a parable by saying, two men went up to the temple to pray... Well, you would have been like, you know what, one of them, I bet I bet one of them cuz he's going to the house of worship and he's going to pray. One of them's going to be a Pharisee cuz they know how to do that. And they're pretty good at it. And we should like emulate them. They're the church type. You know? The Pharisees are the type that say, "Thank you, God." Which is the first act of worship, right? Thank you, God. And they're also the type that look at their life and they say, I fast. I tithe. I don't blackmail others. I don't steal. You can trust my word. I work hard for my living. I don't cheat others. I've been faithful to my wife. I I care for my children and how I parent them. I look after my neighbors. And as a pastor, let me tell you that there's not a pastor in this world who would not say, Yeah, yeah, come to my church. (laughs) You fast and you tithe. You're welcome. You're a member. Done. You're good. You're in. What do you think about a tax collector? Well... You would have thought the same thing about a tax collector as you think of the word, the one who's known for being an adulterer. Um, The publican, the guy who's always over at Al's every single night getting drunk. Or or the guy who's in cahoots with the wrong political party. Don't we hate those guys? Whichever party you want to name. Um, After all, the tax collector, like the disciple Matthew, was the Jewish guy, the Jewish guy, who was taking from his fellow Jews to give some of the money to the Romans. I hate those people. The political extremist on the wrong side of the political side. He's messing with his neighbor's well-being. Doesn't he know that? He's not loving his neighbor as himself. He's the guy up in Perry County shouting out, Bernie, Bernie. And all his neighbors are going, wait, wait. Let me go into my house and see which ammo I have. Or the guy who lives in Midtown who's uh, got a MAGA flag waving outside of his house. You know? how do they approach themselves okay the pharisee says got to thank you i'm doing pretty good i've heard heard those encouragements that i could do it all and i've pretty much done it way to go me And the tax collector, this is what he says. I'm a sinner. Um, Okay, now, first, if the one guy, the Presbyterian here, is the guy that every pastor wants to let into their church, just the title alone, tax collector, would make this guy extremely suspect like, big-time suspect. Um, he probably needs to stop being in cahoots with Rome before he can be a part of the church, right? Like, hey, dude, you got to get this thing together before we let you actually be here. Um, if you want to be a member of Second City City Synagogue, then you got to give up that tax-collecting stuff, right? Um, but this guy, like, we all go, like, we all you can say is, A sinner? How dour. Why all this talk of sin? Um, Some of us just want to go to this guy and say, you know what you need to hear is just how really great you are inside. Um, Some of us want to tell him that the real problem with himself is that he's actually looking at his sin way too much. If you can see simply that you are A human being that's made in the image of God, which he was, then man, you will be all right. Your problem is that you see yourself as a sinner. Stop doing that. Stop thinking so low of yourself. That's why you are so messed up. Two approaches to themselves. But here's the thing. These two approaches to themselves actually have everything to do with how they approach others, right? So the Presbyterian. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Um, The first thing he says to God is an act of comparison to others. If he's looking at God, or is he looking at God, or is he mostly just looking at others? Um, He looks at the extortioners. uh, He looks at the unjust. He looks at the adulterers. And he looks over and he sees this tax collector Who's standing a long ways away from him. What it seems actually is that all he's doing is kind of doing this. What he's mostly doing is just looking at others. Comparing. Judging. He's looking at others primarily who he can feel just a little bit superior to. Which is to say that despite all of the good things that he can probably actually speak about himself, his he's actually a deeply, deeply insecure person. Because all he really wants to do is play the compare game. At least I'm not like that person. The high view of himself has to be bolstered up by the at least I'm not like them. I'm not those folk over there. And isn't this the game we play, right? Hey, we may not have the best behaved children, but at least they're pretty good at sports. I may not have time to care for my body and be fit and all that, but man, at least my kids speak respectfully to others. I may not be at church very much, but at least I care for the well-being of my neighbors. At least I'm Fighting racism, at least I'm a devout spouse. And the at list comparison just goes on and on. We just are so good. We're so good at comparing ourselves to others. Because we're just doing this all the time. like Looking around. How does the tax collector view others? We sort of don't even know. We don't even really know. It doesn't tell us. Um, it does say he doesn't even look up to heaven. Um, and it seems as though he doesn't even know the Presbyterians in the temple with him. He doesn't even acknowledge a Presbyterian minister. Come on, man. And we don't know um, that what his approach to others is in this story. Because it seems as though he's just oblivious to it. It seems as though he honestly just doesn't even seem to care what others are doing. Somehow he's gotten off the rat race. Somehow he's unplugged from all the social media. Somehow he doesn't look at others and want to talk to God about them all the time. And that's because... Your approach to yourself and your approach to others has everything to do with how you approach God. How you approach yourself and how you approach other people has everything to do with how you approach God. Um, Now, before we consider that final kind of part, how we approach God, I want you to think about the odd danger of this parable, right? Because Jesus really does actually tell us at the end, right? I tell you, this man, verse 14, went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, the, other, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we're actually told by Jesus, the one in the story that we are, are to emulate. Um, Jesus does tell us like, hey, you shouldn't really be like this Presbyterian guy, you know, you should be like the tax collector. Um, and because of this, We all sort of instinctively want, actually, to emulate the tax collector here, which is a good thing. But what happens when you do that is you start to play the Presbyterian's game, right? Because what you start to do is at least say, hey, at least I'm not the Presbyterian. At least I'm not some self-righteous do-gooder. And you fall into the very same trap as the Presbyterian. The very trap that Jesus is warning us against. If you're saying you've got it all right now in your heart, then you're probably also saying, at least I'm not like that person. At least I'm the tax collector here. Man, I hate those self-righteous religious folk. Then you're probably playing the self-righteous religious game. I'm going to tell you that I think the cure to this is actually in how you approach God. Okay, so first, with this story, let's acknowledge that both of these people are going to the temple. Both are showing up on Sunday morning. Good for them. I'm glad y'all are here. Don't leave. Okay. Second, what we should acknowledge is that both of them pray. Um, and the first thing, like I said, that we hear out of the Presbyterian's mouth is, I thank you. In some ways, it's a word of worship. Thanks, God. He seems to act, uh, his, he acts, his acts seem to be the right ones. Um, in fact, if you and I were sort of just observing from the back of the temple what's happening up front, we would kind of go, you know, both these guys seem to, seem to be fine before the Lord. Um, I don't notice much difference initially. Well, and then we'd start looking at the tax collector. And we'd notice that he's standing farther away. And we'd probably be like, hey, the Lord wants to be near you. Move up. Sit in the front, whatever, you know. Um, And then the next thing we read about the tax collectors, it says this. He would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. And we want to say, hey, God accepts you. Stop wallowing. Lift up your head and lift up your heart, as I so often tell you when I share with you the words of grace and forgiveness. And then the next thing we read is that he beats his breast. And we sort of want to be like, Jesus died and rose from the dead. Stop beating yourself up. So if we're watching this scene, we either wouldn't just, we just either wouldn't think much of it, or we'd probably be inclined to think, man, this tax collector's a little ridiculous. Stop groveling. Get up. But how they approach God is not really seen so much in their actions, though that is part of it, but actually in their words here, too, and how they speak to Him. Um, How we know know what's going on in the Presbyterian's heart in this story is His speech. Um, The the Presbyterian speaks to God, and His things, though He's speaking to God, are fully concerned with the, the people and the earth about Him. What he's mostly doing is speaking to God and looking at everybody else. His focus is on himself and others. And how the tax collector speaks to God is focused on God alone. And before the almighty God, whose position and whose thoughts are the only one that really matters, he says, you are so almighty and I've been a sinner. But God, you are The one who gives mercy. What's true of you is that you're a mercy giving God. I'm a sinner. You're the merciful one. See how you approach God has everything to do actually with how you think God approaches you. I asked you this question earlier. What's the word that comes to your mind when you think of how God thinks of you? This man says, God, be merciful to me. You're the one who gives mercy. You're the one of grace. So I don't have to hide having my life all together. All the lists of things that I can say, look at what I've done. I can say I'm a mess. Jesus doesn't come for the righteous. You know that. But for sinners. Jesus doesn't come, he says, for those who are well, who don't need a doctor. He comes for those who are not well. Friends, it might seem totally counter to what you think. But one of the best things that we can do is actually recover and actually sort of joyfully recover the fact that we're sinners. Think about this. If we're all screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared, and everyone else is too, like Anne Lamott tells us, Maybe we can be more gracious with one another and with ourselves. Maybe we can put an end to the compare game because we are all in need of grace. Uh, Maybe we can look at our own lives with a little more kindness. Because the kindness of our Savior who comes to us with grace and mercy and truth. Romans chapter 5 tells us this that it's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. It's not while you can list some of the accomplishments and show that you've at least gotten some of your life together, at least more than that person over there. But it's while you are a sinner that God comes for you, that Christ dies for you. Maybe the push to be fitter, to be happier, to be more productive. To move from good to great. I read that book. Because you can put your mind. You can accomplish whatever you put your mind to. Maybe this push actually hasn't produced what we want it to. Maybe this refrain of you can be whoever you want to be has actually done more harm than good. Maybe the downplaying of sin has been to our detriment. But you know what? Even if it has, God loves the screwed up and the unfit and the people that don't know how to parent. Those are exactly the people he's like, I can work with that. Okay. God loves the broken and the clingy and the scared. Maybe we're actually just in the right place to rejoice in this passage that Jesus tells us. Because God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Lord. God. This incessant treadmill. This rat race of. At least I do this game. Showing others how good we are at something. God, I pray that we would see the freedom in coming to you and saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Lord, come to me. I'm a broken person. Lord, comfort me. I'm fearful. I'm fearful. Be my hope. I'm scared. Because you never turn away those who cry out to you. God, would we know that your approach towards us is one of mercy. For God so loved the world that he gave. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. God, and that because it is mercy, we can get off we can check out from this compare game. We can rest a little bit more tonight. We can sleep because you love us. And that's all that matters. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit,
0: amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.